Welcome back to episode three of the Learning to Live podcast. My name is Chaz Okada, and on this episode, we will be talking about aviation. Today is a pretty special day because we have not one, but two interviews. The first interview is with Captain Mike McCaskey, Managing Director of Flight Training for a major airline. And the second interview is with Mr. Steve Butler. He is the Maintenance Supervisor of Simulator Operations for United Airlines. In last week's episode, we interviewed Captain Redmond and asked him about his journey, and he actually went through the military to become a pilot. Captain McCaskey has a slightly different story, and in doing these two interviews, I hoped to illustrate the fact that there are many ways to becoming a commercial pilot. Despite a lot of the recent news around there being a pilot shortage, there are actually a few challenges in becoming a commercial pilot. My goal with doing these pilot interviews recently is sharing how pilots such as Captain McCaskey or Captain Redman have overcome the various obstacles such as building flight time. And on that note, let's get into Captain McCaskey's interview. First off, I'd like to thank you, Captain McCaskey, for taking the time out of your busy schedule for this interview. You're welcome, Chess. So, being the Managing Director of Flight Training, that means you are a pilot, correct? That is correct. What made you want to become a pilot? Well, I had the passion um, starting back in the mid-60s. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force, and so I spent a lot of time around Air Force bases and airplanes. And while he didn't fly, I just always thought that uh, that the airplanes were incredibly cool and something that I wanted to do. And uh, that ign ignited my passion back uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. And uh, I've been fortunate to be able to uh, live the dream, uh, you know, and, and follow my passion over the years. When did you start your pilot training? So I did not actually take my first real airplane ride until I was 16 years old, and that was in the back of a C-141 airplane moving to Australia. My dad got stationed over there. So I didn't really know what I was getting into and what it was going to entail. However, to answer your question, my very first flight was in um, December of 1978 out of a local airport in the Denver area was an introductory flight. And at that point, I knew I was hooked and I was uh, moving full speed ahead. So can you walk me through your journey from the first flight all the way until you got your certifications and ratings? Sure. So it's uh, this was back, as I said, in the late 70s. Uh, I also happened to be going to the university that had an aviation program. And so part of the requirements to graduate were that you have your commercial instrument license as part of the curriculum, along with the other classes that you take for a university program. And so I started uh, with my initial primary flight training uh, soloed. My instructor signed me off to solo, and then I went out and practiced maneuvers and then went through the, learning how to fly cross-country and navigate and all of the weather and airspace requirements. Uh, and then once you cross-country, you go through and do a few other things, and you take your private pilot's check ride. You had to have a written exam, a uh, practical exam, 
And then we're all, all the pilots are required to have a medical certificate as well. So I had to have all three of those. But I passed, uh, and that was part of my degree requirement. And then I just started building flight time, going out to the airport and flying, flying across countries, sharing flights with buddies uh, who were also building flight time, uh, which was the biggest challenge we had. Uh, was finding enough time in the day and enough money to to build those flight hours. But through the university program, I worked on my instrument rating, which is the ability to fly the airplane by reference, uh, solely by reference to the instruments. And uh, took a check ride with the FAA and got that probably a year later. And then right after that, I started into my commercial pilot certificate, which is really uh, in the purest sense of the regulation, the ability to carry passengers for hire. But we get into complex airplanes with uh, controllable pitch propellers, retractable landing gear. They're faster. They go higher. And really leveraging the airplane's performance to its maximum capability. And then you take a check ride for that as well. Uh, that was all done through uh, through my flying at, at the same time I was going to college. So my college experience was unique in that I lived at home with my mom and dad, uh, which is a little hard sometimes when you're uh, 20 years old to, to, to it cramps your lifestyle a little bit for a, for a young college kid. But nonetheless, it was incredible. Uh, my parents were very, very supportive as well. And so that was always a big help. Um, once I got through that, I graduated. I got my flight instructor certificate uh, so I could teach people how to fly. Uh, and there's an hourly requirement with that and a check ride with the FAA. And then I got my um, uh, multi-engine instructor as well as my instrument instructor all together. So I was able to cover in, uh, all the gamut of training needs for anybody learning how to fly, which was great. And I spent a lot of time uh, doing that as well as uh, working part-time at a gas station. Uh, so during the day when it was too hot and too bumpy and the weather might be worse, I was pumping gas. And then in the early mornings and late evenings, I would go out and fly and uh, uh, for money. Uh, I was teaching people how to fly. So um, at that point, I was uh, 1,200 hours of flying, 1,000 hours of flying because I'd been working pretty hard. And there was a corporate operator um, that had a fractional ownership jet, a little Mitsubishi Diamond jet. They're now called uh, beach, they're, um, uh, beach Jets, I think they call them now. Um, and they asked me if I was interested in a part-time job, and I said, of course I am. And uh, I got to fly in the right seat of a jet. Uh, basically working the radios and pulling the gear, but it was an incredible experience. I was able to do that while I was still flight instructing. And so that's where I started building my flight time there. That turned into uh, a job with Kroger Foods, uh, ultimately, and this was in about 1984-85, and also for a couple of smaller companies in in the Tennessee, in Tennessee, Nashville, Knoxville area. Interestingly enough, a lot of the folks that I went to college with and uh, were flight instructing with had gotten jobs at other places. And a buddy of mine called me and uh, left a message on my mom and dad's answering machine that said, hey, Mike, give me a call. I didn't live there, but I got home and my dad said, hey, you need to call this guy. So I called him and he said, there's a company called Aspen Airways uh, that flies Convair 580s that's hiring pilots. So this was October of 1985, September of 1985. So I'd done uh, flight instructing and uh, commercial um, 
corporate flying for about two years, two and a half years. And it was great. I was single. I could go when I wanted to go, come when I wanted to come. And, and you know, there was nothing tying me down. Uh, and so I had a chance to come back home to Colorado, uh, which was uh, a real opportunity. And then I got hired at Aspen Airways, and I checked out as a, a Convair 580 first officer. So it was incredible experience, uh, all hand-flying, no autopilots. We flew in and out of all the mountain airports, Aspen, Montrose, Grand Junction, um, um, Gunnison, Durango, and then up to places like Cheyenne, Sheridan, Cody, Jackson Hole. Uh, it was incredible flying, and, and I was probably the sharpest I've ever been as a pilot uh, from a flying perspective as, I, uh, as I've ever been. Um, we bought, uh, Aspen bought uh, these uh, BAE 146s, their four-engine jets, which is a, was a great airplane for the mountains. And I went to, uh, went to the right seat to fly that as a first officer. I did that for about two years. And then I upgraded to captain on the Convair. Uh, that was uh, a poignant moment for me because, uh, well, let me, I'll, I'll continue the story. Uh, so I flew that for about a year and then Aspen Airways went out of business and I got picked up by United in June of 1990, which has, that's where I've been ever since. Um, so, uh, my career there has been interesting, very fun, but, um, it was ironic in that when I was a kid living on Langley Air Force Base, uh, watching Allegheny Convair 580s and United 737 200s. And when I got to United, it was less than a year after I got here. I was flying in the right seat of a 737-200. And it was like I had remembered seeing some of these airplanes. And, and who knows, I might have actually watched one or two of them land and take off at Patrick Henry Airport out there at, uh, in Langley in Newport News, Virginia. So anyway, my career at United uh, um, has been very productive. I've had a wonderful time. The industry has been uh, somewhat embattled, obviously, with uh, a number of challenges. But I've been a 727 second officer, uh, 737 200 uh, first officer, 737 300 first officer, 737 300 captain, uh, 727 captain, and now I fly the Airbus. I'm an A320 captain. I've been there for about 12 years, 13 years, and, and I love the airplane too. So uh, to be blunt, I've never had an air, I've never flown an airplane I, did, I didn't like. Uh, all of them have unique, uh, unique um, characteristics, and you, you learn to love them uh, because flying is just incredibly fun. Wow, that's fascinating. Do you have any advice for aspiring pilots and helping them overcome obstacles such as building flight time and having the money to fly? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Chaz. And and unfortunately, it's it is a real challenge. And so the the thing I would tell folks, number one, if you really want to fly is to go take a couple of demonstration flights and really see if it's what you think it is, because it looks great. Sounds great, but it's not for everybody, and and that's okay. Um, and then the second part of that is I would encourage people to figure out and to save up as much money as they can to while they're going through primary flight training because the repetition and the continuity of training is as important as anything. And so because money is a bit of a challenge for most of us, if you start and stop and start and stop, you end up repeating things and you don't build that continuity in those habit patterns, those good habit patterns. So that would be one challenge. Um, 
or one item. And then once you get through your private pilot's license, it becomes the, the community gets bigger. You can share flying with people, share rentals. You know, you might even pick up some odd jobs uh, along the way where, you know, you, you move. I used to transfer airplanes. I'd go, they'd put, uh, my flight school would put me on an uh, airliner, fly me to uh, like Oklahoma City, and I would pre-flight an airplane and pick it back up because somebody bought it, and I'd fly it back to to the airport and then do, do all of that stuff. So there's ways that you can um, offset that burden. Uh, the other side of that is the beauty of this industry is it's incredibly diverse in opportunity. And so you might find if you like working with your hands, you want to be a mechanic, uh, an aircraft maintenance technician. And that's a certification process and you have to go to school. But, I mean, when you look at the complexity and the variety of airplanes nowadays between um, – Airplanes that were 1980s vintage and, you know, 2013, uh, 2005 vintage like the 787 and the A350, the, there's a diversity of, uh, of uh, characteristics in the airplanes, composites, all of that stuff, avionics, technology. It's incredible. So there's that aspect. Um, there's a, a legal perspective, right? There's a regulatory perspective. If you really like rules and regulations and study in those, you can become qualified and, and, and pick up a job as a lawyer maybe or, or as a labor strategy person, um, which, is, which is awesome. Uh, dispatchers, uh, uh, you know, in, in our operational environment, we have a dispatcher. There's a shared responsibility between the dispatcher and the captain. There's a certification requirement there. Flight attendants, uh, um, you know, safety professionals. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff you can do. And then, um, and so I would tell someone if the flying piece isn't your, in your wheelhouse, but you love aviation, don't stop just because you don't want to fly airplanes. There's, you name it, you can do it. Airport operations, um, you know, operational environment. You get the space, uh, space uh, environment coming around. Um, you know, and then there's items such as uh, um, uh, drones. That's a that's an explosive industry right now. Is the uh, remotely piloted vehicles, and so there's you name it, you can pretty much do it in um, in the aviation field, which is incredibly powerful. And, and and as I said, it's diverse with opportunity. And so that that's the one piece I would tell folks to look at. That's great. And lastly, do you have any places or resources that people can go to if they're interested in finding jobs in the aviation industry or just want to learn more? So there's there's a couple through the more traditional places. Uh, you can go to websites like the University Aviation Association has, and it's a school. It's a it's a um, a group that represents about 500 uh, colleges and universities that that focus on aerospace fields. Um, there's the, obviously the traditional aerospace engineering paths that you can get through through a number of schools. Um, there's also um, a number of websites you can go to your local airport uh, and really kind of spend some time with someone there. Uh, but you know it's pretty impressive, and and there's a lot of information at your fingertips uh, in the world of um, of searching the way we do today. But I you could start depending on which path you take. Uh, you can you can you know pretty much start with almost down any road you want. All right, thank you so much, Captain McCaskey. It's been a pleasure having you. You're welcome, Chaz. Take care. Thank you. I had a great time interviewing Captain McCaskey, and I thought listening 
to him share his story on how he became a pilot. That was fascinating, and his advice on taking an introductory flight if you're interested at all in becoming a pilot. As someone who has gone through that experience already, I can say that it's definitely helpful to have an introductory lesson to know whether or not that's what you truly want to do and pursue further. And before we get into the interview with Mr. Butler, I'd like to share some advice that I've heard time and time again while doing these interviews. Through reaching out and scheduling interviews, I realized that you can learn a lot about an industry just by contacting somebody and asking more about their job and what they do. So if you think you're interested in something such as the aviation industry or even, for example, the medical industry, then try reaching out to a professional or somebody that already works in that field. Chances are they'll be more than likely to be willing to talk to you and give you advice, talk to you about your goals and what you find meaningful in life, what career you want to pursue, and then they can give you some insight about what they do every day. So that's just a quick side thought that I had. But now I'd like to get into the interview with Mr. Butler. He has a perspective that not many, even in the airline industry, get to hear about. He supervises the flight simulator technicians at United Airlines Flight Training Center in Denver, Colorado. It is currently the largest flight training center in the world, and in the interview, Mr. Butler talks about some of the devices operated and how many they have. Just as a little bit of background, a flight simulator is a device that is designed to replicate the flight deck or cockpit of an aircraft, and pilots can use that to simulate real-life scenarios, real-world emergencies, and they can go through their procedures and practice their procedures in a controlled and safe environment. However, these simulators do not run themselves, and it takes a whole team of people to make sure that they run smoothly and efficiently so that pilots can use them every single day. Mr. Steve Butler's job is to supervise this team of flight simulator technicians and make sure that what needs to get done gets done in the flight training facility. Thank you for sitting down and chatting with us today, Mr. Butler. You're welcome. How did you become a maintenance supervisor? Can you walk me through your aviation career? Yes, that starts a long time ago. In 1984, I joined the United States Air Force, and I went into the Air Force as an enlisted person. Um, several of my uncles prior to me had joined the Air Force, so I took the test, and I scored very high in electronics, so I went into the Air Force with a guaranteed electronics job. That's, that's all I knew. And when I got to basic training, I had the opportunity to pick what job I would like. And flight simulator technician was one of those options. And I chose that option and close to a year of school and 34 years later, here I am. What is it that you learned or did at the Air Force with the Air Force? Well, after an extensive electronic principles classes, just learning everything about voltage, electronics, uh, resistors, just basic electronic stuff. Then you started getting into basic flight simulation classes. And then I was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base in Homestead, Florida, which is about 30 miles south of Miami. And I, I worked there on an F-4 flight simulator and an F-16 flight simulator. So that was... Um, how I got my start. And in the Air Force, you know, I had peers and 
supervisors ahead of me that walked me through and helped me every step of the way. They they just don't throw you into to the deep end and let you know sink or swim. It, it was a, a very good training program. Can you tell me a little bit about a simulator? So what is a flight simulator? Well, a flight simulator basically is the the cockpit of of an airplane and right behind the captain's seat if you were to cut cut off the the nose of an airplane and then put it on a motion up in the air with six legs so that it could it could you know nose down and 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 turn on its side and turn back and uh, it's it's kind of hard to explain but that's exactly what it is it's it's the cockpit of a real airplane i mean all of the instruments, I would say 90% of the instruments are directly out of out of the aircraft. And it is, you know, they spend millions of dollars to make these things so real. And, and, and I can testify, and so can you, that it's, 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 it's as real as it gets. Different components go into building this simulator. Besides, so there's the mechanical components, right? But you also have the screen. Yep, the visual system. Uh, and the visual system, there's the visual system, the motion, and then all, all of the flight instruments. So that there's probably the, those three components that I would say. Uh, the visual system, we, we have the latest and greatest JVC laser projector. So the, the light source is a laser now, not a bulb. So the, they don't burn out or get dim in, uh, you know, 10,000 hours. And... And then the screen is is a mylar screen, which if you've ever seen one of those children's balloons that they blow up with helium, and one side of it looks chrome, that's what that's that's basically a mylar screen that is stretched out in front of you, and they use a vacuum to 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 pull it down tight where there's no wrinkles in it, so that the projectors are up on top. And they display through a diffuser called, uh, we call that a BP screen. Uh, And then the picture gets projected onto the Mylar screen. And it is, in in my opinion, the motion system has gotten a lot better now where, you know, the simulators have electric motion legs. That has changed. It used to, and we still have legs, uh, motion systems here that run on hydraulics. But in my opinion, the visual systems have have that's the greatest advances in simulation over the last 34 years. I mean, you can stop the simulator in the air by using position freeze and uh, the texture and the pictures that you see are from Google Earth. So if you can see your house on Google Earth, you can see your house inside of the simulator. That's how that's how real it is. Wow. So what is it like when you step into a simulator? What do you immediately notice and see? Well, here, all of our simulators, we have a lot of new simulators. Uh, United Airlines has spent a lot of money on purchasing uh, the absolute best and uh, new simulators uh, so that our, our and, and our pilots deserve the best. But everything, it's clean and it looks like you're exactly in a cockpit except for there are seats in the back and then there's a console with multiple flat screens so that the instructor can give inputs of engine failures flight failures weather our pilots don't train uh, flying 
in perfect uh, weather. They they train to prepare themselves for the possibility of something catastrophic happening. And th- and that's that's one of the reasons that I feel that uh, United and and all of the the big carriers are much better at getting people safely to and from is because of the training and the devices, the flight simulators that they train in. They're absolutely the best in the world. So here at United, about how many simulators do you manage? We have uh, over 40 uh, flight flight training devices that we uh, have to pre-flight every day. Uh, Over 30 full flights, and we have uh, close to 15... um, FTDs, flight training devices that they don't have motion, they have visual systems. So every day on a daily basis, we're getting uh, over 40 devices ready to go. So obviously the simulators are a very important aspect of United Airlines operations, correct? Correct. So what happens when a simulator breaks down? Well, and that's that's where I come in. Like like right now, uh, I'm on day shift, but I spend we we have flight flight supervisor uh, maintenance supervisors on midnights. On we have all the shifts, and uh, when decisions have to be made, if we want to move a crew or uh, during the day and afternoon shift, our job is to keep the crews training. We want the pilots uh, flying in a in a simulator that they can train in properly. So we try to get the the trainers uh, fixed as quickly as we can so that they can continue training without any delays. And then at nighttime, when the flight simulators uh, are through with training for the day, whether that be at 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock or 2 o'clock, then then our technicians on nights, they go to work. uh, They get in and they fly the trainers and they look at all of the write-ups that came about during the day. And... Then they try to reduplicate the failures, and if, if there is a failure, then they go about correcting that failure. And sometimes, you know, th- there are so many com- computers, and all the computers are networked together. So sometimes it's as simple as rebooting the multiple computers to get the sim back in operation, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's an instrument that, that fails, and then we have to uh, get an instrument from the line. 90% of the, the instruments in the uh, simulator are aircraft in- instruments. So if we don't have them in stock, then maybe we go out to the airport and get, get, a, get a part. And we do what we can to get the trainer ready to go in the morning. And every morning, 40-plus devices are pre-flown and somebody signs a pre-flight off saying that they've checked the, the simulator and it's ready to go for training. So can you tell me about your team that you supervise? At United Airlines, almost all of our guys uh, were mechanics or, or they have A&P uh, airframe and power plant certifications. Uh, and, and most of our guys came from working on real aircraft. Uh, and then they have to take a test to get here. So... We have aircraft mechanics that have to be really smart to be able to pass a very tough electronics test to get to work here. So the guys that you see working here today are very, very intelligent. And their their background from coming from the line, their work ethic is, is better than I've ever seen anywhere else in, in the world. 
And so I've got some guys that are really great at, at computers. I've got some guys that are really great at avionics. And I've got some guys that are really great at, at hardware. Uh, and I've got some guys that are really great at uh, visual systems. So part of my job is to, I liken this job to being a football coach. You're not going to have, you know, I'm six, seven, 300 pounds. I'm not going to play quarterback. So part of my job is to find out who, who's the best quarterback and who's the best receiver and who's the best offensive lineman. And, that, and that's what these guys do. And that's, and that's what we do as supervisors every night. We work with the leads to make sure that the, the failures that happen during the day are corrected uh, at nighttime. And, and we triage, you know, a simulator that the the motion system doesn't work or the, the visual system doesn't work, it's not going to fly the next day. Uh, you may have a simulator that has a light bulb that's burned out on one of the switches. That that can be that can be corrected easily. So we're going to throw all of our weight behind making sure that device that's that's broken, that's not going to train the next day, is is ready to go. And and that's that's part of my job too. Is is it's it's triage the write ups and making sure and, and working with the leads that we have to make sure that you know we're we get everything done that we need to get done. So I know you came from the Air Force, but today. How does one become a simulator technician? Well, like I was trained by the Air Force and the Air Force or the Navy. They don't train flight simulator technicians. That All of the Navy and Air Force flight simulators are maintained by civilians. And so the people that we're getting now are coming from the line, uh, and they, were, they had an aviation background. And uh, we've just hired five individuals, and they all came from uh, being an, an avionics technician uh, working for United Airlines. And so the only way to become a, a flight simulator technician uh, for United right now is to have an, an, an A&P license. Or if you're an, if you already work for United and you don't have an A&P license but you're an avionics technician, and you you have to have an FCC license, then you can come and try to take the test. And if you pass the test and you want to come and work here, then that's what you have to do. Uh, other airlines uh, take flight simulator uh, technicians. Maybe they were you know in the military and now they're out. I, I would say that to me, the best person that I could find right now is somebody that that's out of the military, that worked on aircraft. And they've gotten a job at United as a mechanic, and they in their in their spare time they like playing with computers. Those and so they like networking, uh, you know, switches, Cisco switches, and those types of people that are you know you would some people would call them geeky because you know instead of playing video games they're they're rebuilding another PC. Uh, those are the guys that come here and and girls that come here and excel. Do you have any advice for somebody that has the skill set to become a simulator technician but does not necessarily know how to enter into that career field? I tell you what, with with at, here at United Airlines, I would do whatever it took to get my foot in the door. If, if it meant uh, throwing bags uh, out at the airport, uh, I would find a job in a way to get a job with United Airlines. And then once you're inside, 
United Airlines and, and openings come available, and they do, that's when you take the opportunity to take a test and move up to a, a different job. Um, but but somebody that's young and, and some of the some of the people listening to this uh, podcast are going to be young. You can't beat education. I'm 54 years old and I've played a lot of sports and softball. I wish that I would have now, I wish I would have given up one night a week of playing softball whenever I was younger and, and taken uh, more college classes. That's something that it, it, it's, it's not a waste uh, to, to educate yourself. And nowadays you don't even have to have a college degree to do this. You just, you could go to a vocational school and get a degree in, uh, or get a certification in air, air, airframe and power plant, or get a, a job as an electronics technician, and, and start building those skills that it takes to do this job. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mr. Butler. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's quite an interesting job. After being able to see and experience the simulators for myself, I was blown away by how real these simulators actually are and the things that they can do, like simulating adverse weather conditions or various system failures. It's quite interesting and quite cool to see such a job that you never hear about or learn about from school. I realized that a lot of that conversation was talking about how one becomes a flight simulator technician, but there's really a need for flight simulator technicians from what Mr. Butler has told me. And just any technical job or service job in general, there's a lot of people that aren't going and filling those jobs. So if that sounds interesting, it's something to possibly explore. That's why I wanted to focus on the journey to becoming a flight simulator technician. Another quick tip that I have learned through the podcast process and also through my parents is that if you have a dream job or a dream company that you would like to work for, it really helps just to get your foot in the door. Because once you get your foot in the door, well, first, a lot of companies hire within the company before going public with their job postings. And secondly, you can make a lot of connections with managers or people that can give you strong recommendations, which is very important in the job application process. Now, as for this podcast, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Do I focus too much on the job finding and career searching, or should I keep doing that and dig for life lessons or tips and tricks on finding jobs or job interviews or resume building? Let me know what you want to hear in the future, or if there's anybody or any industry that you'd like to hear an interview from please reach out and you can reach out by going and following my social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find those links on my website, which is chazokata.com. That is C-H-A-Z-O-K-A-D-A.com. And I'd love to connect with you and hear your thoughts as I have a lot of interviews moving forward. I want to make them as valuable to you, the listener, as possible. And as always, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.